This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to Intelligent Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. In the past decade, the power of Chinese state surveillance has reached into all aspects of its citizens' lives. From the app which processes most of the country's payments, to gate recognition technology which can identify someone simply from the way they walk. On this episode of the podcast, we were joined by Josh Chin, Deputy China Bureau Chief for the Wall Street Journal, to explore China's growing quest for social control, and why this should worry us all. Our host for this discussion is Katie Stallard, Senior Editor for China and Global Affairs at The New Statesman. Here's Katie with more. I'm delighted to introduce our guest today, Josh Chin. Josh is the Deputy China Bureau Chief for The Wall Street Journal. He is an award-winning journalist who spent six years as a politics reporter in China covering law, civil society, and the government's use of technology. On which topic, he is the co-author with Lisa Lin of Surveillance State Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control, which I cannot recommend highly enough. So with that, let me say, Josh, welcome. It's great to see you. I want to start, as you do in the book, in Xinjiang, where you describe the utterly dehumanizing process through which a Uyghur couple, Tahir Hamut and his wife Marhaba, are taken down into the basement of a police station to have their faces scanned, their fingerprints taken, and even their blood drawn. I think a lot of the time we tend to focus from the outside on the camps in Xinjiang and the terrible atrocities that have been reported there. But could you give us a sense of the role that technology and surveillance are playing in the Chinese Communist Party's efforts there? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think to, to, to understand Xinjiang, I think you need to step back just a little bit, right, to just sort of understand the, the background of the conflict there. Uh, so, so for people who don't know, uh, Xinjiang is a it's in the remote northwestern corner of China. It's a huge area, about twice the size of Texas. Like Texas, it, it's resource rich, but it's always been a really difficult place for the Communist Party to control. And that's because it's home to, to 14 million Turkic Muslims, mostly Uyghurs, who really have almost nothing culturally in common or very little culturally in common with the Han Chinese, and many of whom are really resentful of Communist Party rule. And so, you know, for decades and decades, the Communist Party has tried to impose control in Xinjiang without success, you know, starting in the, the sort of early 2000 teens, the resistance there was starting to get a little bit you know, increasingly violent. So in 2016, 
after years and years of failed crackdowns, the Communist Party decided to basically try a new tack. And what they did was they, they, they built this, this network of, of internment camps, of, of sort of a gulag that, that people know about and that you, that you mentioned. But what they also did was they married that with this network of 21st century surveillance technologies. Um, and these were, you know, these were cameras. They had, you know, they installed, you know, clusters of, of AI powered cameras, microphones, digital checkpoints, all sorts of sensors that, that essentially tracked and categorized Uyghurs. Right. So it would, it would collect behavioral data uh, about every Uyghur in Xinjiang and it would use that data to try to predict whether or not they would be a threat to the Communist Party in the future. And Uyghurs whose behavior suggested they would be a threat, they were categorized as, as, as unsafe. And, uh, and they, those were the people who were sent to the camps to, to be re-educated. So what does that look like at a personal level for a Uyghur couple like uh, Tahir and Marhaba, who you describe? What does that mean in terms of their, their daily life, dealing with, with what you describe there as these digital checkpoints and this pretty ubiquitous surveillance? Right. So, so yeah, if you were a Uyghur uh, living in Xinjiang, particularly at the time when I was, was reporting there in sort of late 2017, 2018, into 2019, essentially your life, your entire life was, was subject to, to surveillance virtually around the clock. Um, so if you walked outside, if you wanted to go to a market uh, or a bazaar, you wanted to go into a hotel or a, a bank, any, any public place you had to go through a, a checkpoint that would where you would scan your ID card and, and also scan your face. It would match your face to your ID card and that would be a digital record of your movement. Um, and if there was anything on your record that flagged you as a, as a risk, as a high risk person, an alarm would go off and security personnel would swoop in and, 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 and drag you off to, to interrogate you. But even, you know, you didn't even have to go into a bank or, or, or a market or anything like that. Just walking down the street, um, you have police that would wave you over uh, and demand that you hand over your smartphone and plug that into a, a smartphone scanner. It would scan your entire phone in, in, you know, a minute or two and discover, you know, basically scan it for any kind of digital contraband. Right. So things like encrypted chat apps um, or even things as, as benign as a as pictures of Turkish movie stars that, that the Communist Party thought were sort of representative of a Turkish nationalist identity. There were, of course, there were, as I said, there were cameras on, on, on street corners that could identify you by your face uh, and track you that way. And, you know, for certain Uyghurs, including Tahir and Marhaba, the, the couple that I opened the book with who, who had traveled overseas and who had sort of international connections and were themselves, you know, fairly influential, those sorts of Uyghurs were subject to this really, really intensive biometric data collection. So, you know, in, in the case of Tahir and Marhaba, they were, they were called down to the basement of a police station and they had, they, you know, not just fingerprints, but their blood drawn. They were asked to read a newspaper and have their voices recorded. And then at the very end, they had 3D scans of their, of their faces made so that a facial recognition camera could recognize them from basically any angle. What did they tell you about their experience of that process? I mean, it sounds like in part, this is about establishing this real sense of control on the part of the authorities. Right, right. I, I mean, you know, what was, what was really fascinating, actually, in talking to, to, to them about this is that actually it sort of crept up on them slowly, you know, because this was a population that was used to 
to being subject to control and to a certain level of surveillance. I mean, there have always been cameras in, in Xinjiang. And they didn't quite realize, it was sort of bit by bit, the system sort of grew and became more sophisticated. And it wasn't until after they, they'd had all their biometric data collection that they realized just how completely their lives were being monitored and controlled. And then it just became extremely terrifying and suffocating. And they were sitting in their apartment and they were watching like their neighborhood empty out as more and more Uyghurs were being taken away. You know, first it was like young men and then older men and then women. Um, and, you know, pretty soon their neighborhood was just no, you know, it was a really busy neighborhood in a, a really thriving area of Urumqi, the capital of Xinjiang. Uh, and within a few months it was empty. And so, you know, for them, they they formulated this plan to to escape, and they eventually did escape, although it took took a, a huge effort. Um, but for Uyghurs who couldn't escape, I mean, they still they sort of still live um, with this sense of just constantly being being watched, um, and and you know, and and to a certain to a large degree, a lot of them at this point have just internalized this idea that everything they do is being measured and monitored. And you describe what's happening more broadly across China as a radical experiment to reinvent social control through technology. How would you say what we're seeing happening now under Xi is different to the kind of mass surveillance that we've seen under past authoritarian regimes? Right. Um, well, first, I think to understand this, uh, we have to, you know, again, step back a little bit. And I think it's important to note that, you know, surveillance in a certain sense is basically indivisible from the concept of a state. The famous anthropologist James C. Scott wrote in, in, in his book, Seeing Like a State, he said, all states essentially, almost from the beginning of time, have gathered information about the people they rule, right? And, and he, was, he described this as a, as a process of rendering societies legible. Um, and, and you kind of have to do this if you're a state, right? And you, I mean, you need to, if you want to levy taxes or conscript troops, you need to know who in your society uh, makes you know, certain amounts of money or, or has sons who are, who are of a sort of military age, right? So this is always, this has always kind of been a part of governing peoples, collecting information about them. And, you know, in the 20th century, you saw this sort of taken to an extreme with, with totalitarianism, right? You had, you had, you know, figures like, like Hitler and Stalin. They didn't just want to make states legible. They wanted to, to sort of scientifically engineer them. They wanted to gather enough information that they could manipulate, actively manipulate states and sort of mold them in, in, in ways that they thought in their minds were, were, were scientifically desirable. Um, and of course they failed and, and, and they failed in part because they, did, they didn't have the technology. They didn't have the tools to, to do that. And so in China, what you're seeing, you know, with, with this recent explosion in the capabilities in, in artificial intelligence capabilities and also this massive data collection that, that the internet has enabled, is the Communist Party believes it now has the tools to engineer society, right? In theory, they believe that if they collect enough data and they, they build the right analytical tools, they can, they can not just solve problems quickly, they can actually solve social problems before they even arise, right? And sort of, and, and sort of build a society that runs kind of perfectly, you know, without, without problems. Um, and, that's, and that's sort of where they're, they're aiming. Could you give us a sense of the scale of what we're talking about here in terms of the, the data collection um, that you mentioned and, and just the, you know, the, the sheer scale of these surveillance networks that the party has built? Right. Yeah. It, I mean, it really it's it's just massive. Right. It's um, you know, the Chinese government has access to data on a scale that no other government in history or now, you know, can even begin to match. If you, if you just kind of look at the numbers, it's, it's really it's almost hard to wrap your mind around. But they, you know, China has something on the order of 400 million surveillance cameras. And people in the UK 
people often say when you talk about surveillance, like, oh, well, look at London. London has so many cameras. That's true, it does. But a lot of those cameras, they date back to the troubles, right? They're, they're, they're old cameras. They're from the 80s and 90s. They're, you know, they're kind of decrepit and they're, they're fuzzy and they don't work that well. In China, most of the surveillance cameras are state of the art. So that means they have facial recognition capabilities. It means that they can, they can recognize someone by the way that they walk. They have gait recognition uh, and they can, they can do crowd analysis, all, all sorts of analytics. You also have in China, you know, close to a billion smartphones. Uh, which the government can use and, and during the pandemic did use uh, to track where basically everyone in the country was going and had been. And then finally, I'm just one more thing, which I think is really, really amazing in, in China is, is mobile payment apps, uh, right? Which, you know, let you know, you've spent a lot of time in China. Anyone who's been in China knows this. They're, they're sort of ubiquitous. Basically, nobody uses cash anymore. Um, and these apps, they do 10 times the transaction volume every year as MasterCard globally. And that, of course, is what people spend their money on is just incredibly, incredibly valuable behavioral data in terms of telling you what people value, uh, what their priorities are. And so the Chinese government has access to essentially all of that information, which is which is just offers really unparalleled insight into into Chinese society. Does that create a, a potential mechanism of control, too? Because, as, as you say, these mobile payment systems, you're really dependent on your access to these platforms to be able to, to pay for things. So are people aware that if they are pushed off the platform or they're not allowed to use their account, that, that has real you know, live, real world consequences? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that is, you know, there's nothing more devastating if you're a Chinese person, you're in China to, than to lose access to WeChat, which is this do everything app um, made by, by a company called Tencent that is, you know, it's essentially Facebook, Instagram, Amazon, PayPal, Twitter, Orbitz, all combined into one. It is almost impossible to do anything in China without this app. Um, you know, you pay your bills using it. You you talk to your friends. You book travel. You invest, and so and you know that data is incredibly value, valuable to the government. Obviously, um, in in a way that you know really no tech company in the U.S., for example, is valuable. You know, like the, you know no, it's just incredibly hard to get all that big of a cross section of data in one place. But yeah, as, as you point out, if you misbehave on that platform, if the government decides that your behavior is not, um, if they, they don't like your behavior, uh, they can kick you off and then you just you lose access to everything and life becomes, you know, just incredibly difficult. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. 
Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over 600 each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply And you point out early on in the book that much of the the underlying technology for these tools comes from places like Silicon Valley and that many democracies are also now grappling with the relationship between big technology and individual freedoms. Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the things I think in researching this book that we were really surprised to find. It was, I mean, obviously we knew that, you know, American tech companies had been involved in China, been coming to China for, for a long time. And, um, and, we, and we knew, you know, as, as you know, tech reporters, we sort of, you know, had this idea of, of course, you know, companies like Cisco, these old Silicon Valley companies had been in China early to help it build the great firewall, like the, the system of internet filters and censorship that, that, that China uses. But I don't think we realized quite how important, just absolutely, actually totally vital to, to the Chinese surveillance state these companies really are. Um, and, you know, and, and from the very beginning. And, you know, I mean, just, just as an example, Intel, right, which, which makes chips, they very early on spotted what would become one of the one of the more important Chinese surveillance companies that, that makes video networking equipment, which you know connects a bunch of video, which connects networks of video cameras together. They had a venture capital arm that that found this this small company that had originally done video surveillance for the 2008 Olympics, and they invested in them, nurtured them, helped turn them into this kind of surveillance behemoth. And then also sold them chips. And then through this company became sort of the chip provider of choice to most of the surveillance companies in China. Uh, And so, you know, now Intel sells just a huge number of chips to surveillance companies in China or has up until recently sold huge numbers of of chips to Chinese companies. Um, You also have like... Storage companies like Western Digital, I mean, people who, who've bought uh, external hard drives to their computers might recognize that, or Seagate. You know, these companies sell the storage uh, drives that, that are used to collect surveillance footage in places like, like Xinjiang. So essentially, the surveillance state in China really wouldn't function without American technology companies. 
You have a great quote from a senior executive at Hewlett Packard um, talking about the supply of uh, some of their technology to a, a network in Chongqing, where he says, we take them at their word as to the usage. It's not my job to really understand what they're going to use it for. Do you think that that kind of response, that kind of attitude is sustainable, given what we now understand about what this technology is actually being used for? Right. Yeah. I mean, that was. I mean, that's a kind of age, an age-old line for American tech companies, right? I mean, this actually goes all the way back to 1930s Germany and IBM when they IBM was selling sort of essentially the proto computer, the, the 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 these punch card tabulators uh, that that eventually evolved into computers to the Nazi regime to help them track. Jews. Um, and they, at the same, they said the exact same thing. They said, oh, well, we don't, we just sell the machines. We don't know uh, what they're being used for. I think it's, you know, it's getting really hard now. I think with the, with the, the level of scrutiny you have around China and, and what it's doing with these technologies, um, you know, the, the U.S. government has been very aggressive in, in imposing export restrictions on, on certain technology companies. So, um, you know, major uh, surveillance camera makers like Hikvision, which which is the Chinese company's the largest surveillance video camera maker in the world. There are there are restrictions around U.S. companies exporting technology to that company and to a lot of other companies. But the trick is there are a lot of loopholes. You know, I mean, global supply chains are so complicated now. It is almost it is it is actually quite hard to track where everything is going. I mean, one one example recently was that um, an American chip company called Nvidia, which makes uh, graphics processing units, high-end graphics processing units, which are really, really um, useful in AI and training artificial intelligence algorithms. The U.S. government banned NVIDIA from selling its most advanced chips to certain Chinese companies. But if you check on Taobao, which is, a, which is like a Chinese version of, of eBay, you can buy that chip from some random guy. So, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just so hard to, to control this sort of thing. I think companies are, are, trying, are having to face it now, but they're also finding other ways to sell, sell that equipment. You write that you don't want to reduce the story of this country of 1.4 billion people down to a narrative of simple oppression. Um, we've already talked a little bit about, about the mobile payment systems, um, but what are some of the other applications of, of technology um, that you looked at, perhaps uh, those that we would classify as the, the more benign um, applications of this technology? Right, right. Yeah. You know, I mean, that was, um, that was one of the a really sort of interesting aspect of, of, of doing this book, of pursuing this, this, this research, because you know, we started in Xinjiang, which, which was a, a unequivocally dystopian place, right? And, and, and you know, was, was straight out of, of, of 1984, um, the novel 1984. And, but as, you know, as we looked wider, we, you know, we found other places um, where, where the exact same technologies uh, were being made, were being used to sort of make people's lives easier. And, you know, I mean, I think significantly these were wealthy cities. Um, these were Han Chinese cities, places that were already pretty safe and pretty stable that the Communist Party wasn't, wasn't terribly worried about. Uh, and in those places, um, the technology was, was a benefit, right? So, so in Hangzhou, for example, and Hang, Hangzhou is, is a major tech hub on the east, east coast of China. It's home to Alibaba, which is one of China's biggest tech companies, um, does e-commerce, cloud computing. It's also home to Hikvision, the camera maker I mentioned before. Um, so it, the government in Hangzhou several years ago teamed up with Alibaba to build what is called the city brain. Um, and that is essentially moving a, a, a bunch of, of essentially 
seeding the entire city with, with lots of sensors, cameras and other sorts of sensors and centralizing all the data from that, from those sensors and using that, uh, using that data to make the city run more smoothly. And one of the more, you know, one of the more striking examples of this was in traffic management. Uh, they actually have a system where they, they, they can track essentially almost every car in the city uh, and use it to optimize traffic. But what the other thing they can do is with ambulances, they have, they've installed a system on ambulances that allows them to get to a hospital quicker. So one example we found, there was a, a woman who lived on the outskirts of, of Hangzhou and an older woman, and she was doing laundry in a creek and had, she had fallen in and, and nearly drowned. She, uh, luckily a, a neighbor saw her and pulled her out, but like they needed to get her to the hospital. They called the ambulance and loaded her up and the ambulance flipped the switch and it basically essentially turned all of the lights green all, along the entire pathway to, to the hospital. And she arrived there in half the time or less than it would have taken her to get there. Anyway, they pumped her stomach. She was fine. Um, right. So this, you know, it, it was one of these kind of just amazing examples of how technology, you know, can, you know, be a matter of life and death in, the, in, the, in a positive way. And in other areas, they, they've sort of automated the ability to, to spot litter or to spot misparked cars and, and that sort of thing. And, and so basically, people who in Hangzhou just kind of live this algorithmically blessed existence, right, where there's just very, very little friction. And what did you hear in the course of your reporting from people about their own attitudes to that? Could, could you sum up? Um, it's a very unfair to do thing to ever ask people reporting from China to could you just sum up um, rough impressions from 1.4 billion people? But yeah. what kind of what kind of things um, did you hear from people about their own attitude to this use of technology? Right. Yeah. You know, I think I think what we what we discovered talking to Chinese people is that, you know, perceptions of, of state surveillance kind of vary widely depending on who you are and where you are, right? So obviously every Uyghur we talked to was, was terrified and a lot of them didn't want to talk to us at all for good reason. In Hangzhou, you know, people were, they were generally happy with it. You know, I think, um, you know, most people have this attitude, most people there had this attitude that if you haven't done anything wrong, you don't have anything to worry about, right? And that's, and that's not just a Chinese attitude, by the way. I mean, I, one of my more vivid experiences uh, while I was working on this book was when I was doing some reporting on state surveillance in the United States. And I was at JFK airport flying back to China and standing in the security line. And there was a, a couple standing in front of me talking about a uh, media report about state surveillance in China. And the, I remember the wife saying, oh, yeah, it, was so, it sounds so awful and, and terrifying. And the husband saying, well, if, you know, that exact line, uh, if, if you haven't done anything wrong, you don't have anything to worry about. So I used to think that was a Chinese idea. It turns out it's, it's maybe more human. But, but, you know, a lot of people in China, you know, there is this question of how much Chinese people value privacy, uh, which is which is a really difficult one, I think, to, to answer. The, the word for privacy in China didn't appear in the official modern dictionary until 1998. So it is a relatively new concept. But, you know, people people do, you know, especially in wealthy cities like Hangzhou or Beijing or Shanghai, I mean, people people know they have a concept of privacy. They value it. Um, but a lot of people sort of felt like at least prior to the pandemic, which we can talk about uh, in a bit, um, they were pretty happy. They were pretty happy with it. They felt like the, the sacrifice and privacy was worth the gains made in, in convenience and security. You write that China's network of digital sensors is often described as all seeing, and it certainly goes further than any previous state surveillance network. 
But in fact, it's still riddled with blind spots. Can you give us a sense of what some of those blind spots are and, and what you meant by that? I mean, I think there is, um, I mean, all seeing is, a, is, a, is an easy shorthand, but I mean, really, we're, we're still not to that point in technological development where any surveillance system is truly all seeing. And this is true even in Xinjiang. Just the mere fact that we were able to write about Xinjiang um, and interview Uyghurs at all is, is kind of testament to the fact that the, the system is imperfect. It's very good. You know, I mean, I, I do recall one, one point when, when I was driving around in Xinjiang in a, in a rental car with a reporting partner of mine. We actually we were in the middle of nowhere on a dirt road trying to find our way to a highway um, and were pulled over out of the blue by a bunch of police in SWAT gear. And, and it turns out that they told us they found us because a camera had spotted our, uh, our license plate and, and sent them a, a notice. Despite that, we were still able we were still able to find blind spots. We were still able to find places where we could talk to Uyghurs, um, where, you know, whether it was in an apartment or in a car, in, a, in an alleyway, right? There was, it, was still, it was still possible to kind of get information and exchange information, information that the, that the Communist Party really didn't want uh, us to find. So, you know, there, there are those blind spots. Um, China is a vast country and, and 1.4 billion people is a lot of people to track. So it is difficult. It's just impossible. But, you know, the, the way that it works is you don't it doesn't actually have to be all seeing. Right. The, the the sort of and this is true basically of all state surveillance systems or any surveillance system, period, is that they're most effective by simply persuading people they might possibly see you. So if and, and, and you know, people in China do know that they do, they have internalized this idea that they are being watched all the time. And so uh, there's and there's a huge amount of propaganda around that. Um, so even though the, 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 the surveillance state doesn't see into every corner, it is sort of embedded in everyone's mind. And, and in most cases, that's, that's sort of enough to serve the, the Communist Party's purposes. You describe the global war on terror as having seeded the field of digital surveillance, but then the pandemic as being the miracle grow that fed its explosion. Um, you touched on this a little bit earlier. What would you explain about the role that, that technology and surveillance have played in, in China's approach to pandemic controls? Right. Yeah. You know, when the pandemic hit, I mean, it really in some ways was like the perfect test for the surveillance system. Right. It was a it was it was this massive threat to, to public health, to, to sort of social stability, to the economy, an existential threat, really, in some ways. And and so, you know, initially the, the, the Communist Party was sort of seemed to be a little bit caught off guard. Uh, and so they did, you know, they, they locked down Wuhan, but not before a lot of people got out of the city and started, you know, spreading the virus around the country. But they very, very quickly got back up to speed. And, and one of the more remarkable things they did was, you know, in a matter of months, had built a system using cell phone data where they could, they could essentially track everyone in the country, anyone who had a, a smartphone, which is essentially everyone in China. They were able to track their movements and, and do contact tracing in a centralized way. I and mean, if, if you just kind of think about the scale of, of something like that, it really is just mind boggling that any government could pull this off in, 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 such, a, in such a short period of time. And then, you know, the, the system really evolved really quickly. Beyond that, they started, they inter introduced a system of health codes um, so that, you know, everyone had on their smartphone this app with a, with a QR code that was color coded depending on your level of risk 
of exposure to the virus. Um, so if you had a green code, you could go anywhere. You had to, you know, similar to Xinjiang, um, you know, if you wanted to go into a bank or a mall or something, you had to scan in uh, with your code. If it was green, you were fine. If it was yellow or red, you had a problem. And if, if it was red, you had, to, you had to quarantine at home. And so, you know, through this system, you know, the first year of the pandemic, they actually, China was remarkably successful uh, at controlling the virus, right? I mean, it was, people debate the numbers in China, but, you know, just looking at, at hospitals um, and, and death numbers and, and just anecdotally talking to people in China, the virus was, for the first year of the pandemic in China, was essentially controlled. Um, and, and a lot of that was thanks to, to these technological systems. Um, so, you know, while, you know, you had just bodies piling up in places like New York and London and India, basically around everywhere around the world, China was, was, was fine. And it was quite, it was quite remarkable. And actually, in fact, you know, some of the people who we talked to in China earlier who had, who were very privacy conscious and who did sort of initially object to the, to being surveilled all the time after a year of the pandemic, seeing what was happening in the rest of the world, a lot of those people told us, oh, actually we're, we're fine with it now. You know, it's, it's good. It's keeping us safe. How did you see those attitudes shift over time, particularly over, over the last year, as we've seen these really extensive lockdowns in place? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, the, that's been the, one of the most interesting shifts in recent last couple of years is everything changed in China with, with the arrival of Omicron, because Omicron, uh, as, as a variant, moved faster than surveillance technology was capable of, of, of keeping up with. Uh, and so the Communist Party had to move from tracking people who might have the virus to using their te the surveillance technology to keep people locked inside. Uh, and so you had, I mean, the most vivid example of this uh, early on was, was in Shanghai, you know, which is the financial center of China, one of the wealthiest cities in China. And uh, they had a, they had an Omicron outbreak there. They kind of tried to they tried to sort of manage it in, in some more nuanced ways than they usually do. And it got out of control. And so then they just locked the city down and, you know, you had people, you know, 20, 30 million people locked in their apartments and they were using, you had robot dogs, you know, prowling residential zones and you had drones flying around to try to track, to see, to make sure that people were not trying to sneak out. Um, and it just became, the city became this one of this kind of gigantic digital prison. Um, and people felt really desperate because they, you know, they, the, the government had not really been prepared for this. They didn't, so people couldn't get food. They, a lot of them couldn't get medicine. There was a real sense of panic. But in, you can imagine in, in, in you know, most places in American city, there's just no way you would actually be able to keep all of those people in their apartments, especially if they're starving. But in China, because they had these systems, they were able to keep those people locked up. And it was a real shift, I think, especially if you think about people like, you know, residents of Shanghai, these are people who don't generally feel the sharp end of communist power, right? They generally get all of the benefits. Um, and through this experience, they suddenly had this very, very visceral insight into how, into what it is like to be on the wrong end of, of, of communist party power, um, like the Uyghurs have been. Uh, and I think that really changed attitudes a lot in China, um, to the point where you get to November last year, um, there was a, a fire in Urumqi, actually, in the capital of, of Xinjiang, um, where, where several people died. And, and locals believed they died in part because of, of lockdown measures, because they couldn't get out. Uh, and that set off protests across the country. Um, and these were, you know, these were people, these were Chinese people who five years ago, maybe 
didn't think about the Uyghurs, didn't care about what's happening in Xinjiang. And all of a sudden they're protesting on behalf of, of, of Uyghurs. Um, and it was, and, and a lot of them, when we talked to them, it was because they said, no, now we understand, we identify, we, we get it. And they were so frustrated with the levels of control they'd been subject to that they went into the streets, which in China is an incredibly rare sight. I mean, you almost never see it these days. Uh, it, was, it was quite a remarkable show of defiance. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. So let me encourage you to read Josh and Lisa's terrific book for more. For now, I'd like to thank Josh for a fascinating conversation. The book, again, is Surveillance State, available now from your local bookshop. I'm Katie Stallard, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Connor Boyle with editing from Catherine Hughes. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should talk about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencequared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years from our back catalogue featuring some of the world's greatest minds, then head over to intelligencequared.com.